Hi, everyone. Welcome to the End of the World podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world and ask why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that people are thinking about the end of the world. After taking a few months off this spring, we're back in action and with an expanded focus. Next few shows will turn from the earlier end of the world focus to questions of religion and globalization. This first show looks at debates over the changing role of religion in the post-World War II period and how the rise of new forms of ethnic and religious nationalism caught many secular proponents by surprise. We'll also begin exploring some of the links between religion and violence and think about how religion acts as both a source of conflict and a potential vehicle to resolve other conflicts. As we'll discuss, it's increasingly difficult to disentangle the impacts of globalization on world religions from the rise of new forms of religious nationalism and religious violence, some of which have apocalyptic elements. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my World Religions and Global Issues class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So with no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. Professor Cruz here. Welcome to our week one lecture for our World Religions and Global Studies class, RELS 332, where we're diving into this um, first week thinking about the way that global trends have changed religion today and how scholars in the past have been trying to make sense of um, the changes that globalization and other global dynamics are having on religion. So just as a reminder, this week we've got four articles we are looking at. Global Religion is Today by Tweed, Religious Politics and the New World Order by Jurgens Meyer and a couple other authors. Um, Orientation, Did Religion Do It? by Schleiser and um, several other authors. And Religious Nationalism in a Global World, uh, again by Jurgens Meyer, which is in some ways an update of the earlier article that we read. So just to kind of give you a broad sense of what um, this first week's lecture and the kind of themes we're talking about and that kind of big picture, there's really kind of two key issues that I want to highlight. The first is the way that the post-World War II world was thought about by scholars, particularly scholars of religion, and the debates about um, how important was religion in the world. Because many, as we'll see, or as you remember from the readings, um, were convinced that we were seeing a decline in religion globally after World War II. And so that's one of the important themes for this week. The second one is, how do we make sense of these sort of complicated connections between um, religion on one hand and violence on the other? Something that a number of our articles talked about this week and we'll see as a continuing theme in next week as well. 
So as our authors this week have argued, for much of that period in the 1960s and into the 1970s, that sort of countercultural era in the United States and many other parts of the world, there was this belief that um, secularism as a, a, an idea and secular nationalism in particular were becoming more important globally and that religion and its importance was increasingly shrinking. In fact, uh, as you recall from the readings, um, this very kind of idea came to be known as the secularization thesis. But by the 1980s, as our authors talk about, um, it was clear that uh, religion actually wasn't going away. And in fact, many argue that it never really went away. Um, it was simply changing in new ways. And so what we saw during this period was that popular expressions of religion or religiosity uh, were evolving in relation to these expanding and changing dynamics and pressures, um, things that we today associate with globalization in this emerging globally interconnected world that really became um, much more important in the beginning of the 19, uh, 1990s. Um, but as our authors also note, this renewed uh, sort of importance of religion or sort of the new uh, rising influence of religion um, also gave rise to new forms of religious nationalism, as well as ethnic and religious violence that were wrapped up with um, these globalizing processes. And so that made many scholars wonder, well, we're seeing this resurgence of um, religion and globalization and violence. Is there a connection between this sort of religious nationalism um, and globalization to explain why we're seeing more religious-related um, violence? And the answer, as our authors this week talk about, is to basically say um, yes and no, that it's complicated. Um, and we need to look at specific historical examples and specific context to be able to answer um, why religion may or may not be playing a role in either helping to increase violence or possibly helping to decrease or ameliorate violence. But what we do know and what most scholars are in agreement today is that there is a clear connection between religious violence and globalization, but oftentimes there's actually deeper social issues that are at the, really the root of um, what we might think of at first glance as religious violence. So being able to untangle those becomes a really important challenge, not just for religious studies scholars, um, but for everyone. So that's kind of a broad um, picture of the sort of what we're thinking about this week as we look at these interconnections with religion and violence and globalization. So in the first article we read from uh, Tweed, Global Religions Today, as you recall, Tweed argues that it was really unclear in that period right after the World War II was over, um, whether religion and the nationalist impulses, as he describes it, and industrial economies that um, they kind of gave birth to, was bringing people together or pulling them apart. And he argues that that question became even more difficult to answer after the 1970s when we saw kind of this resurgence of political uh, religion and increasing global flows. Again, this is sort of the lead up into what we think of as the globalization of the 1990s, um, as well as increasing um, and accelerating environmental problems, which by the 1970s um, started to become more important. So we see really this shift, he argues, between uh, the former industrial age, sort of the pre-World War II, 1945 period, and this transition into this new sort of information age or digital age, which was happening in the late 70s, but really kind of fully came into bloom by the beginning of the 1990s. So Tweed argues that we can think about some of these post-World War II religious traditions as um, sometimes helping to bring people together. So we could think about the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted in 1948, influence of Catholic liberation theology, particularly in Central and South America, 
um, the emergence of feminist theologies and questions about gender equity within the church and within different religious institutions. Um, we also saw the rise sort of of religious influence, civil rights and social justice movements. So someone like B.R. Ambedkar in India or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States um, were just a few figures that were coming out of this growing global uh, awareness and kind of resurging religiosity. And then also something like Earth Day in 1970 and this emerging ecological awareness on the part of many members of religious traditions. So we step back for a second and think about, well, what does this religious landscape look like today on the global level? And our author gives us a bit of a sense. So you can see that pie chart on the left, religious believers globally. And clearly, um, Christians and Muslims, followed by Hindus, make up your sort of three largest blocks of religious um, adherence. Obviously, Christianity and Islam by far being the two largest but also still uh, Buddhist, indigenous traditions, Jewish, and then the other traditions, which would be things like Sikhism and Zoroastrianism, uh, Taoism, Confucianism, and the other sort of smaller traditions, make up a significant portion, almost 80% in many cases, of sort of global population, with another roughly 15% being sort of uh, those we might call none. So there could be atheist or agnostic or non-religious. And within those kind of bigger categories, for example, Christianity, um, Catholics represent almost half of all of those Christians globally. And um, in the context of Muslims, uh, Sunni tradition is almost three quarters of that, 87%. So you can see um, overall, if we think about the role of religion and its impact globally, we can say very clearly that um, religion is a key part of a majority of people's lives um, around the world today, regardless of which traditions they might practice. Now, Tweed also argues that uh, religious traditions in this post-World War II period were also drivers of many global conflicts. So we can think about this kind of classic example of the Cold War, where you had the godless communists on one side versus the greedy capitalists who were always assumed to be Christian. This is, so this is the U.S. and this is the Europe um, in this conflict. And you can see that image there on the right um, from a Russian publication in the late 80s showing the Russian wall there with the sort of backdrop of um, industry, and then in the front you see members of different religious traditions, Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox, um, Protestants, um, Muslims, Jews, and others, all trying to kind of beating on the wall um, of the Soviet Union, trying to get in. But we can also think about other examples, such as European and American colonization and the role of imperialism and this idea that um, U.S. and Europe had this uh, sort of civilizing mission, whether it's um, in parts of the African continent or whether it's an early sort of uh, colonial period and the sort of new frontier, um, the Northwest within indigenous communities here in the U.S. And we could uh, tell a similar story in uh, Mexico and Canada and many other countries. And we can think about the communist occupation of Tibet. It began in 1959. We can think about the Israeli seizure and occupation of Palestinian lands in 1967 after the war. We can think about the Catholic-Protestant conflict in Northern Ireland, which really kind of exploded onto the scene in the late 60s. So really by the mid-1960s, as Tweed argues, uh, many of these religions, both big and small, were becoming less important in the world as these secular trends were growing and engaging uh, sort of more of the public. Um, but that trend was not going to last for very long. But yet in that kind of moment, in the mid to late 60s, we still, um, scholars and others, had this sense that religion really was not that important. But as Tweed notes, um, it didn't really die. It 
In fact, what was happening was religion was diversifying. So we think about the United States in the 1960s, the rise of kind of counterculture movements. You can see the picture there of Allen Ginsberg, sort of uh, famous troublemaker and poet with uh, Tibetan Buddhist leader Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who became an influential, uh, albeit a controversial figure um, in the United States, Europe, and later in Canada when he moved there. Um, but sort of we're all part of this emerging constellation where um, European and American youth particularly were interested in ideas from Buddhism and Hinduism, as well as Native American traditions and New Age philosophies. So all these were kind of emerging or sort of bubbling up in this period of the 60s, which led, for example, you know, Time magazine to ask in April of 1966, is God dead? And of course, we know the answer is um, no, um, but that was the kind of prevailing um, thought at that moment. So really, we think about these religious changes taking place from, let's say, the 1970s to the 2000s. Um, we really saw increasing conflicts that were sort of driven or shaped by religions. So for example, we can think about the attack on Buddhism under Pol Pot in Cambodia in 76, the attack on the Sikh's Golden Temple of Amritsar by the Indian government and sort of allied um, Hindu nationalists in 1984. Uh, the Balkan Wars between Christians and Muslim ethnic groups in 1991 to 1995. Um, here in the U.S., we saw the rise of kind of the Christian right and the moral majority led by figures like Jerry Falwell in 1979, which would then expand um, much more significantly with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Uh, things like the Iranian Revolution and the rise of the Islamic Republic well, under Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979. And a little bit more recently, the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon by Osama bin Laden in 2001. And we can certainly add more to that from this list, uh, but in that kind of time period, we're seeing these kind of growing examples of religious violence. But Tweed also notes, importantly, just to kind of help us keep us in... Um, keep this idea in mind that there's kind of both the dark and the light. So we saw many constructive roles for religion in this period as well. The 1998 Good Friday Agreements that helped bring initial sort of end of the hostilities between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, even though in the late 60s, those same dynamics were leading to um, religious conflicts. And we saw involvements of different Catholic charity groups in Rwanda after the genocide in 1994. And we saw, as noted earlier, kind of an increasing number of religious denominations um, adopting various ecological statements, um, which began in the 70s, but really took off by the 1990s. And it was really at that same period, kind of the cusp um, before really the internet became what we think of uh, it today, um, when it was still kind of emerging, but it was there and religious groups really started experimenting with these new technologies and using these new you know, digital technologies, internet technologies to both create and spread their religious ideas. So for example, you can see a famous poster there on the right, an apple with the Dalai Lama with the apple tagline, think different. And some of the examples our authors talk about, the digital tools that religious groups used to, for example, track religious holidays, or the movements or the sun and the moon, to, if you're using lunar or solar calendars to decide uh, when certain religious festivals or holidays or prayer time should start or end. Um, the general use that we kind of think of as kind of normal today of websites and email for communication, which was really still um, very new at that period. Um, the emergence of kind of virtual forms of worship, so within Hindu traditions, being able to do kind of digital pujas, um, within the Muslim tradition, being able to do a virtual hajj uh, to Mecca. So these different kind of examples of online communities, uh, specifically religious communities emerging. And we've, you know, 
this past year has been a really great example of that with COVID-19, just seeing how uh, religious communities have been adopting and adapting um, to, you know, social distancing measures, staying at home, um, closure of religious centers of worship. Um, So we really see the kind of the full blossoming of religion being digital in the last year or two. But we also see kind of at a, a deeper cultural level, the diffusion of not just the technologies of digital interactions, but the language itself. So talking about, you know, deprogramming someone, for example, from a cult they may have joined or, you know, God's GPS as a way to help orient your life and find your way through the, the crowd of weeds and tangles. The idea of friending God or as one um, commentator noted, the lines of people waiting out front of the Apple stores for the latest iPhone as if it was Jesus' phone. It was like the return of some great icon. And so in kind of a a bigger sense, we can think about, you know, with the emergence um, of the Gutenberg Press in 1450 and the ability to do sort of large-scale print publications, of which the Bible was the most significant um, document that was being printed and translated and sent around at that time, as an analog to the Internet, Um, in 1989, because both of them really revolutionized the way that information traveled and was communicated, and religions were one of the big adopters of kind of using these new innovations um, for their benefits. Now, as Tweed notes, scholars have continued to debate the links between religion and conflicts um, in the 21st century. Some see it as a unifying force, others see it as a source of conflict. So one of the theories some of you may be familiar with if you studied um, political science or even sociology or anthropology is this notion of the clash of civilizations. This was really an argument that was first developed in the late 1990s by a political scientist in the U.S., Samuel Huntington, who essentially, if we boil down uh, sort of his argument, he assumed or argued that there were opposing cultural identities, which in his uh, sort of formulation was the Islamic civilization on one side and the Christian civilization or the West on the other. And he argued that these were sort of irreconcilable Um, cultures or civilizations that would be doomed to clash and that was one of the primary sources of both cultural political and religious um, conflict another argument um, is this idea of the world of three cultures which was first developed by Mexican diplomat Miguel Basanez in 2016 and uh, what Basanez argued was that world religious traditions could be kind of grouped or placed into what he thought were three distinct Uh, sort of groupings based on shared cultural traits. So you have the cultures of honor, which he um, put Hinduism, Islam, and Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And he really associated those with the idea of tradition and hierarchy and agrarian values. And then there was the cultures of achievement, which he placed Protestantism, Confucianism, and Judaism, and really associated those with hard work, Um, focus on future rewards and kind of industrial values. And then finally, he described the third one as the cultures of joy, which he placed Buddhism and Catholicism, and really saw those as kind of underlined or driven by concerns with the family, um, social interactions, and sort of post-industrial values. So it's another way of thinking about um, the role of religion and politics in these emerging global spheres. But now, as Tweed argues, and others as well, Um, While these are interesting arguments, ultimately they're not extremely convincing, at least to religious studies scholars, because both they rely on a lot of simplifications and generalizations, and many of those claims don't actually hold up to more sort of critical scrutiny. So, for example, Tweed argues, sadly, both digital connectivity and ethno-religious cohesion have been among the forces of fragmentation. 
computer technologies, which were inspired by this kind of spiritual vision, um, particularly in Silicon Valley, that was supposed to bring us all together, um, has led to a loss of intimacy and lots of other um, problematic implications for our political life. And he argues that overall, the evidence suggests that hostility towards people of different ethnic or religious backgrounds is increasing. Um, and unfortunately, these new digital technologies are playing a role in helping the spread of this, particularly social media um, in the last few years. But he reminds us again that even though some analysts um, note this, they often forget that this, at the same time, these technologies and more broadly, these trends of religion in the global context are both bringing people together and forming more cohesive sort of groups, but they're also um, working as sort of an adhesive, as he notes. So forming bonds between um, different faiths in order to help work on um, shared problems. So on one hand, we see kind of religious conflicts pulling people in opposite directions, but at the same time, we see a kind of shared, let's say, religious values, bringing people together to work on common problems, let's say, uh, human rights or poverty or climate change, where religion has become a center to bring people together um, in most cases, rather than kind of what's pulling them apart. Now, in Jürgens Meyer's article on religious politics and the New World Order, we get a little more kind of nuance and detail about these trends that he and other authors such as Tweed have been talking about. And Jürgen Meyer notes that one of the remarkable features of political life in this sort of global era is this rise of strident new forms of religious politics. So, for example, Hindu nationalist parties in India, the sort of anti-government Buddhist movements in Sri Lanka, Christian militias here in the United States, as well as xenophobic Christian nationalists in Europe, um, Jewish extremists in Israel, and Muslim um, activists in Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Palestine, and other parts of the Middle East or North Africa. So he notes um, everywhere, it seems, if you look at different religious traditions, new forms of religious activism have been on the rise. Some violent, some nonviolent, some a bit of a mix of both. And again, we see, as Jürgens Meyer notes, scholars in the 1990s were still kind of debating this decline of religion, that, as we were talking about. But we've certainly seen um, the resurgence of religion since um, from that 60s, 70s, 80 period um, now into our second decade of the 2000s. But public support for secularism, which originally was a core value of European Enlightenment thinking and really the heart of what we think of today as kind of modern liberal democracies, has actually been not only declining, but is actually globally under attack, or certainly, if not under attack, at least um, increasingly um, challenged. And alongside these trends, what we've also seen is an important global shift um, as countries become increasingly more diverse and more globally interconnected through ideas, through flows of people, um, through kind of cultural production, religious practices, and economics. What's happened is we've seen a fostering of more global diversity and a backlash to that same diversity, often from traditionalists and conservatives who are opposed to these various social changes. So what we're seeing here is that the relationship between religion, globalization, and politics is really complex. But some groups embrace and promote globalization, while others sort of um, either oppose it or favor uh, a more kind of rigid or defined sense of nationalism. So we can think about this in two ways. One is kind of the religious uh, nationalist movements. So as we heard before, the Hindu nationalist groups like the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, and the RSS in India. Um, Christian nationalist groups like the Tea Party or Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers in the United States. 
um, ultra-Orthodox Jewish Haredi groups, such as the United Torah Judaism or Shas in Israel. So that's kind of one example of the religious nationalist movements that are very focused on kind of internal politics. But there's another version of this, which is the kind of religious transnational movements. So we can think about the Islamic Hamas movements in Palestine and Lebanon, um, the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, ISIS or ISIL um, across the Middle East and North Africa, as well as Pentecostal and charismatic forms of Christianity, which are um, exploding across Asia, Africa, and the Americas. As another version of uh, sort of religious nationalism, but not strictly focused on kind of the bounded nation state as we think about it. So Jürgensmeyer argues that um, most of these conflicts are actually not about religion, but they're other conflicts about identity, economics, privilege, and power. But they become religionized, as he describes it, um, with an aura of sacred combat. And by that he means um, the kind of existential importance of these political struggles have been kind of anchored onto and grabbed onto by religious traditions um, as sort of authoritative reasons for um, their positions. But Jürgensmeyer also points out that um, there's been a lot of new studies in recent years that have argued that um, religious conflict is really a byproduct of this global age for a lot of different reasons. Religion helps to legitimize these movements of rebellion by providing symbolic empowerment and also enabling these kind of religious rebels to respond to traditional cultural credibilities to the challenges of globalization. So by kind of looking back on uh, traditions and cultures from kind of an earlier period and using those to kind of ground contemporary claims, that's a way to challenge these kind of uh, foreign external globalizing forces. And um, when we think about the 21st century or sort of God century, as Ta, uh, Ta Philpott and Shaw talked about it in their um, excerpt we read in Jürgensmeyer's piece, you know, they talk about these same trends in the 1960s and 1970s that led people to believe that secularism was really on the rise. And, you know, at that period, it made sense. You had Fidel Castro in Cuba, you had David Ben-Gurion in Israel, you had Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, the Shah of Iran. All these seem to be evidence of this growing secularism in um, the 1960s and 1970s. And um, as he notes, again, this kind of period gave us this idea of the secularization thesis, the kind of rise of secularism as the dominant um, kind of global political framework. And that idea really has deep roots. So came out of the European Enlightenment and philosophers who were really embracing these new ideas as that sort of idea of liberalism was emerging out of the earlier kind of feudal and monarchical periods. And so you had figures like Thomas Jefferson, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Charles Darwin, uh, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and Max Weber, um, all making these arguments about the, this new kind of secular political moment and these new forms of, um, you know, civic compacts and social um, power. But as Ta, Philpott, and Schott point out, um, even though the secularization thesis um, was convincing for uh, a whole generation of scholars, um, really by the time we got to the 2000s, um, that argument had really lost most of its support. And in fact, uh, a growing number of people and areas that um, had been more secular in the past were quickly embracing religious ideas that were challenging secularism. So it, as they note, in India, for example, the number of people who completely agree on the separation of faith and government dropped from 78% to 50% in just five years, from 2002 to 2007. Thus, over the past four decades, 
Religion's influence on politics has reversed its decline and become more powerful on every continent and across every major world religion. So again, that's this resurgence that we were talking about. Now, interestingly, even though we've seen religion continue to grow and this kind of secularization thesis was sort of pushed by the wayside, um, at that same period, sort of in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, you had a new generation of writers, which became known as the neo-atheists. Um, figures like uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett, who really tried to revive the secularization thesis. And they wanted to not only defend secularization as kind of a social good um, and something that should be um, embraced and protected and fought for, um, but in the words of Hitchens, you know, they saw religion as always and everywhere hardwired to be irrational, violent, and repressive. So we saw, in a sense, a kind of a militant secularism um, rising up in response to um, this resurgence of religion. But um, many scholars argue, um, as do Ta, Philpott, and Shaw, that this kind of neo-atheist overstated their case, um, not only by ignoring the ways that religion and globalization have you know, contributed to peace and social stability, um, but have played many other roles that are not simply about um, violence or sort of repression. So understanding how religion shapes politics has become increasingly important for us today as scholars. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Jürgens Meyer argues that radical religious ideologies are behind many of these um, rebellions against authority. Yet he notes that religion gives more than a voice for the dispossessed provides a basis for a fundamental critique of the modern nation-state. And when it does that, it challenges the legitimacy of these secular institutions and national identities. And these religious ideologies, he argues at least, have emerged in this 21st century as a new basis for political legitimacy and national identity, precisely because um, this former kind of secular nation-state is now, he describes it as vulnerable, but certainly is more um, contested than it was before. So while secular nationalism was the reigning ideology essentially um, from the 1950s forward, um, after World War II with the rise of world uh, liberation struggles, particularly third world liberation struggles in um, parts of Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia, as well as the Cold War and growing critiques of Westernization, part of them fueled by these liberation struggles, um, the global appeal of secularization really began to wane um, in the 1990s under the face of all of these different global pressures. But at the same time, as we saw before, we're also seeing the emergence of more multicultural societies thanks to these globalizing dynamics. So this growing diversity was seen as a threat by some to what they imagined to be their kind of national identity or national culture. So, for example, Jürgens Meyer notes that in Europe, the presence of large immigrant populations from the Middle East ignited new forms of racism and new fears of the erosion of national values. In the United States, the Christian militia organizations were animated by fears of a massive global conspiracy involving liberal American politicians and the United Nations. And we see this uh, very clearly today with uh, the rise of QAnon. Uh, anti-COVID uh, sort of vaxxer conspiracies, 5G, um, this idea that there's this sort of global cabal um, out there bent on uh, destroying not only the United States, um, but kind of Christianity uh, more broadly. So these different expressions of kind of ethnic nationalism not only challenge the authority of the secular nation state, um, but they provide an alternative source of identity and belonging um, to members 
who can then kind of redefine what their central ideologies are in a given society in these moments of crisis. So for those of you that may be familiar with historian Benedict Anderson, um, this is very much what he talks about when he describes the idea of imagined communities and the way that um, over time, um, communities were kind of intentionally forged or created through you know, shared values and images um, and uh, concepts. So in the contemporary political climate, therefore, religious nationalism provides a solution, Jürgens Meyer argues, to the problem of Western-style secular politics in a non-Western and multicultural world. Now, the challenge here, as Jürgens Meyer reminds us, is that although many members of these kind of radical religious and ethnic groups may appear to fear globalization, um, actually what they distrust more are the specifically secular aspects of globalization. So it could be global economic forces, it could be cultural forces, um, anything that they perceive as kind of undermining or undercutting their own legitimacy, and more importantly, um, what their identity and their sources of power are based on and emerge from. So nationalist groups have often embraced selectively aspects of globalization. So think about the internet and social media um, have become key parts of nationalist movements, whether it's religious nationalism, ethnic nationalism. Um, because precisely because they do help these nationalist groups to spread their message. And in kind of the extreme cases, what we've seen um, kind of very troubling forms of religious nationalism are these apocalyptic uh, kind of nationalists or apocalyptic religious organizations who frame their struggles in the language of cosmic wars or holy wars, as Jürgens Meyer noted earlier, um, which often include calls to violence in order to bring about some kind of an imagined end times prophecy. So we can think about the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas is one example. Uh, Om Shimrikyo example in Japan with the gassing of the subways or some of the Messianic Jews and attacks that have taken place in Israel and in Palestine and the West Bank. So these, uh, just a few of the many examples of these kind of apocalyptic um, religious violence that take some of these ideas um, to the extreme when they feel that their identities are under attack um, by these various globalizing forces. Now, these diverse global social movements don't have a single approach to how they understand globalization. So rather, you know, they're picking and choosing um, which aspects of globalization they're opposed to and which um, they embrace. We might think about this in the United States context, um, people who are arguing they're you know, against the globalist agendas, um, but they have no problem you know, using internet technologies and smartphones and lots of other devices bought through Amazon and other entities um, that are deeply embedded in these larger kind of global structures and networks. So Jürgens Meyer argues the crucial problem in an era of globalization are identity and control. And it's for these reasons, the assertion of traditional forms of religious and ethnic identity are linked to attempts to reclaim both personal and more sort of larger cultural power. But he argues, until there's really kind of a more stable sense of citizenship in this emerging global order that we really don't have right now, um, these religious visions of a particular moral order will continue to appeal um, and be attractive to some individuals, even though they're disruptive and ultimately don't provide a solution to our identity and our belonging in this global world, but they make uh, help some individuals make more sense of their role in this sort of uncertain period. And we've certainly seen this play out in the U.S. and Europe and really in many countries um, in terms of a kind of growing cultural war uh, between competing political interests. So in, we might think about 
religious nationalists on one side who really want to turn back the clock on social changes and reforms and sort of secular advocates. They may be global advocates or not, um, but they're not religious nationalists who are advocating to you know, consolidate and expand these global gains of social rights and political rights that have been made in recent decades. And you're really seeing kind of a tension between those two different kind of competing camps. And these struggles are playing out, you know, around issues of abortion, around issues of voting reform and racial justice, um, even debates around citizenship rights, such as we've seen in India in the last year or two. So all of these are some of the different examples that are important to keep in mind when we think about how religion and globalization are connected together. Okay, that's the end, uh, part one of this lecture for week two, and we'll pick up with the other two articles in part two of this week one lecture. This is the part two lecture where we're going to continue delving into um, these different themes that we've been talking about so far. So in the piece we read from uh, Schleiser, Karifsi, Orlana, and Kolontai, they ask this question about, did religion do it? So when we think about uh, religion and violence, is it really religion's fault um, for all the violence we're seeing in the world, as some scholars suggest, or is there more to that story? So they argue in line with what we saw from Jürgens Meyer earlier, that when we look at human history, both you know now and in the past, uh, religion and violence appear to be best friends. As they note, according to a recent report from the Pew Research Center, more than one quarter of the world's countries experience high or very high levels of social hostility involving religion, compared to one-fifth um, just in 2007. So a significant change in a little over 15 years, a little bit more than 15, not quite 20 years. Um, but they also note that we need to be cautious when we talk about religious violence uh, for at least two key reasons. And the first one is that it can make us see religion as the primary or sole cause of violence, um, when in fact there may actually be more deeper underlying issues and religion just kind of a surface cover um, for that violence. And the secondarily, or sort of the second reason, is that um, it can paint religious violence as irrational and fanatical, but make sort of secular violence appear rational and sort of acceptable. So religious violence bad, uh, sort of normal secular violence, okay. Um, and they argue that there's a danger in doing that because it sort of normalizes violence in a certain way. And as we've seen, you know, religion is really ambivalent. It can promote violence or it can promote peace. And so it makes more sense to talk about the sort of uh, violence with religious dimensions rather than strictly religious violence. And there's at least three ways our authors suggest that we can think about um, kind of how um, violence with religious dimensions plays out. So one is the nature and role of religion in society. So we really need to think about um, different time periods and the context of different events to see, well, how was religion influencing conflicts going on at that time? And was it sort of a, a factor influencing or shaping violence or perhaps mediating violence? A second way is thinking about the relevance of different dimensions of religion in a specific context. So was uh, the point of contention about which religious tradition you follow, or was it about a different interpretation of a religious doctrine, or was it something else, a specific religious site, perhaps, um, that was the reason for a conflict? And then the third example they talk about is thinking about um, the individual understanding of religion by scholars, because really when we think about, um, you know, we read about religious violence, we're always hearing about that through the lens of a reporter or a journalist or a writer or a scholar, 
who has her own kind of understanding of what religion and violence are. And so we're also always being influenced by that as well. So being able to keep sort of these three dynamics in mind can help us think about um, complicating the idea of religious violence and think about violence with religious dimensions. Now, when we talk about religion and violence, there are kind of three different types of interconnected violence that scholars like Johann Galtung have identified that can help us think about um, this kind of interplay of religion and violence, in particular identifying the root cause of violence. So Galtung um, identified or described what he called three different forms of violence. Direct violence, which would be physical violence, structural violence, which is a more kind of institutional form of violence, and cultural violence, which is more kind of ideological. And in his uh, sort of writings, he thinks this as sort of a violence triangle with culture, structural, and direct violence as the three um, sort of points of this triangle. And Galtung argued that cultural violence makes direct and structural violence look and even feel right, or at least not wrong. So he argues that the study of cultural violence highlights the way in which the act of direct violence and the fact of structural violence are legitimized and thus rendered acceptable in society. And his point was really that, you know, we, we think about peace as the absence of violence. But in order for that to make sense, we first have to understand, well, what is violence? So if peace is the absence of violence, then how do we define violence? Is it just one thing? And he argued, no, it's at least three things. So we can also think about how violence serves kind of this broader function in society, particularly when we think about uh, structural and cultural violence. So for example, some of you may be familiar with French philosopher René Girard, who's written a lot about uh, religion and violence. And he refers to this as sort of relationship as the mimetic nature of violence, um, by which he means that um, social competition between uh, different individuals is driven by, he argued at least, desire and rivalry. So I see what someone else has, and I really like that, and then I want to have that, and then that person who has it then becomes a rival. And so I'm trying to outdo them, which can then lead to violent conflicts, which he described as a sort of the imitative desire. So I imitate what I believe others desire until it becomes my own. And that conflict over trying to kind of hold on to um, and sort of maintain, you know, the supreme position in a rivalry or to capture that which you most desire often becomes the source of communal violence. And the way that that is often resolved, he argued, is with when a community essentially identifies a scapegoat or the scapegoat mechanism, as he called it, um, that they can sort of direct their anger and violence onto um, in order to kind of restore social cohesion in that society. So we can think about the Tutsis and violence against them from the Hutus in Rwanda. We can think about the Jews in Germany um, and many other different examples that kind of play out this scapegoating role in society. Now, in discussing the links between religion and violence, um, Schleiser and co-authors describe six different roles that they view religion playing in any given conflict. So the first one is religion as a community. So this, we might think about the authority, religious authorities, our religious relationships and our religious identities. And the second one is religion as a set of teachings. So the concepts and norms and values that we get from religious traditions. Um, a third is religion as sort of spirituality. So that personal experience um, and why religious you know, beliefs motivate us and give meaning both to ourselves and to the world around us. 
Another way is thinking about religion as a practice. So the very kind of everyday symbols and rituals and myths that we do um, as part of our religious traditions. We can also think about, they argue, religion as a discourse. So the way that um, language and power and worldviews, or what the Germans call Weltanschauung, are kind of embedded in how we think about and see the world. When we talk about you know, sin and good and evil, that's kind of a, a religious language. And then finally, religion as an institution. So the leaders and the networks and the delivery of various services from soup kitchens um, to uh, community services that various religious leaders and institutions play. So all these are kind of different roles that we can think about religion playing in any given conflict and perhaps also in any given peace scenario. So in, in each of these six examples, we can find ways in which religion can both uh, fuel the flames of a social conflict, but also put water on those flames to help put out communal violence. So for our interest, really, or as, as scholars more broadly religious studies, um, what we want to understand and try to pay attention to are these different kind of complex and interconnected dynamics of religion in various conflicts so that we can think about, you know, that relationship between religion and violence. Where do they intersect? How are they operating? Are they in tension? Are they working in collaboration? Um, in which case are they one? In which case are the other? And how do we try to explain that better? So in our article on religious nationalism in a global world from Jürgensmeyer, our final one, uh, we get a bit of a re-sort of framing of some of the earlier arguments from Jürgensmeyer in that piece that we read for this week. And he really argues that if we think about contemporary context, the vote in the UK for Brexit and the election of Trump in the United States in 2016, uh, the rise of figures like Viktor Orban um, in Hungary, all of these are, he argues, indications of a strident new form of nationalism that's sweeping the world. And he argues that much of it is interwoven with religion, which is creating an aggressive cultural nationalism that's asserting itself from uh, Myanmar to the Middle East to the United States and beyond. And really at the heart of the argument that Jürgen Meyer is making is this claim that resurgent forms of religious nationalism are tied to globalization and these various changing political, cultural, and, econ and uh, economic dynamics, also ecological, actually, at the global level. But the paradox here, as Jürgens Meyer points out, is that while religions are increasingly global in scope, they're also reinforcing these kind of local ties and expressions of nationalism that are often hot, you know, hostile to these very global trends. So what we're seeing there is that um, this weakening of older forms of secular nationalism is one of the outcomes of this rising kind of new global religious nationalism. And among other things, as Jürgens Meyer notes, the global forces are undermining many of the traditional pillars on which the secular nation state has been based, uh, such as national sovereignty, economic autonomy, and social identity. So as we you know, have been talking about, religious studies scholars in the 80s and 90s um, really thought that the rise of these kind of new forms of religious and ethnic nationalism were tied up with these anti-colonial struggles and this kind of broader rejection of westernization and kind of western models of um, development and economics and politics. Um, but by the 2000s, what we were really seeing was a rise of new forms of ethno-religious nationalism, not just as a kind of rejection of modernity and this kind of western-led project, 
um, but in some ways as a response to postmodernity and to kind of new transnational forms, uh, most clearly globalization. So in some ways, the kind of fading or the declining power of the nation state and these older forms of secular nationalism have produced both opportunities for new nationalisms to emerge and also the need for them um, to fill in the vacuum left behind. So as he argues, the opportunity has arisen, you know, both as these older sort of secular orders seemed weak, um, but also because there was a need for a national identity to kind of persist so we would know who we are and what our values were, um, both in public life and in kind of broader political engagements. And the increasing absence of any other kind of ways to identify our national loyalties and our commitments, these older ideas of religion and ethnicity and traditional culture um, have become resources for national identification. And it's precisely the kind of the resurgence and the kind of restating of these old kind of traditional values that are at the heart of kind of this tension between religious and secular uh, forms of nationalism. So for us as scholars, particularly in religious studies, we want to try to make sense of these diverse ways that both religious nationalism and secular nationalism are changing, and more importantly, how they're responding to this breakdown of these older forms of social organization. And what does that mean in the context of you know, decreasing support for secular nationalism around the world? So Jürgens Meyer suggests, in part, to sort of answer that question, that the turn to these older, more kind of traditional values and ideas in kind of our times today um, is, in a sense, is very radical, in part because these calls are sort of, you know, reaching back into the past to restore these sort of pre-secular ideas and values. And in that process, uh, Jürgens Meyer and others have argued, um, <clears throat> what we're seeing is that these religious movements, particularly these religious nationalist movements, are becoming more confrontational and often violent. And this is precisely because, as he notes, they reject the intervention of outsiders and their ideologies, and at the risk of being intolerant, they pander to their indigenous cultural bases and enforce traditional social boundaries. So we might think about here in the United States, you know, this emphasis on a kind of white uh, Protestant history and culture that is really at the core of what it means to talk about, for example, American or U.S. history. But in the global context, this can translate into uh, strongly anti-Western ethnic and religious nationalisms, and particularly in countries that were formerly colonized or, you know, had major imperial interventions from the U.S. and Europe. Um, but on the flip side of that, in countries like the U.S. and in Europe, um, in Canada, Australia, what this has actually often meant is not a rejection of anti-Western uh, forms of politics, but rather a backlash against um, immigrants and perceived religious and cultural threats, so um, anti-Islamic or um, anti-Jewish sentiments in much of the uh, U.S. and Europe. But as Jürgens Meyer notes, uh, for example, many of the supporters who voted for Brexit in the UK context or for Trump in the US uh, presidential context thought they were rejecting international trade alliances, so the kind of globalist alliances, and the influx of refugees from around the world. They imagined that their nations can return to a self-sufficient economic <clears throat> and political order that does not rely on global networks and transnational associations. So there's a sense that somehow 
you know, we can push the foreigners away. We can kind of save or reclaim what is authentically our culture, you know, whether you're a Briton, uh, a Brit or an American or uh, whatever country you might be in. So, you know, we saw this with, uh, you know, the build the wall uh, kind of chance and calls to deport um, undocumented individuals. We've seen this in the case of um, England with, you know, rallying by the National Front and other parties against what they see as the Islamization of um, Europe. Um, we see this with um, nationalist movements in places like Russia and the resurgence of both uh, Russian, almost like going back to the kind of the Russian Empire. Some of the flags there are not even kind of the modern Russia, but they go back to the Imperial Russia, um, as well as rallies in Germany and other places that are kind of on the forefront um, of some of these European immigration um, debates and migrations as well. So this kind of surgence of uh, a nationalism, often a religious nationalism, that sees these um, sort of outside influences in communities as some kind of a threat to their culture and their identities. So when these uh, kind of examples emerge, these ethnic and religious expressions of nationalism can be either isolationist, so this is kind of the America first uh, version, as we saw, or they can be transnational. We look at cases like India or Indonesia and a few other countries where um, the nationalists also kind of have alliances overseas. So in some cases, maybe the idea is to create local religious states that could then merge into some larger transnational body. And this is part of what we see with um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and others, this idea of uh, reviving the Islamic caliphate across um, you know, the Middle East, eventually much uh, greater area. But other times it might be on creating and expanding um, religious and ethnic um, diasporas. So we think about maybe a Sikh community in the U.S. or Canada um, being leveraged by um, Sikhs in um, parts of India, say Hindustan, um, to try to argue for you know, independent states. So you see both kind of a very narrow nationalism from some of these groups, but also sometimes more of a transnational, but still the focus ultimately is back on the state. And these kind of expressions can emerge in response to local calls for an ethnic or religious state. We saw this, for example, in 79 with the Iranian Revolution and the creation of the Islamic State. Um, but they can also appear when existing secular states collapse or become um, destabilized. So Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan or ISIS or ISIL in Syria and northern Iraq. So similar ideas, but they may kind of come about through different processes. So Jurgensmeyer notes that, you know, in this new world order that many of these religious and ethnic nationalists oppose, you know, they don't like this idea of a new world order. And um, they note that the increasingly multicultural societies of many urban communities all over the world have undermined, in their minds, traditional cultures and their leaders. So they've imagined the United States and the UN to be agents of an international conspiracy, one that they think is hell-bent on forming a homogenous world society and a global police state. So this is very much the kind of fear of the new world order. Um, those of you that may be familiar with Alex Jones, this kind of idea of a global police state um, is very common. QAnon, again, would fit into this category as well. So we, you know, and we see this in many different contexts, not just even in religious um, societies. So, you know, we're seeing a resurgent, um, not necessarily a secular nationalism, but kind of a quasi-secular nationalism in China, particularly in related to Hong Kong in uh, recent months. We see this, for example, in France with Marie Le Pen and others, where there's kind of a reassertion of French uh, nationality and identity, which is clearly um, not 
North African, is not Muslim, um, as the, you can see from the poster on the top right there. No to Brussels, yes to France with um, Joan of Arc kind of at the backdrop there invoking this kind of iconic image of French religious resistance against, in that case, uh, you know, Islamic uh, invaders. You've got groups like the National Front in the uh, UK and England who are, again, calling for sort of saving not only England, but also kind of white people and the white future, what they see as under threat. And, and again, examples here from the United States with this message about um, how the U.S. is um, uniquely and uh, most importantly, uh, essentially a Christian nation. So all these are different forms of expression of these uh, emerging religious nationalisms, and in some cases, uh, sort of variants of secular nationalism, um, China being kind of a strange outlier here because their power is growing on the global scale. And although you have Taoism and Confucianism um, and other religions in China, ostensibly as a communist nation, China is kind of a secular power. Now, Jürgen Smeyer refers to these kind of examples as guerrilla anti-globalism, and he really sees this as a dynamic a dynamic which runs the gamut from you know, radical Islamists on one side to alt-right and white supremacist groups, for example, Proud Boys on the other. And it, but it kind of brings them together by their kind of militant um, politics and their sort of opposition to um, globalization and these kind of global dynamics. So as Jürgens Meyer suggests, these different possible futures each contain a paradoxical relationship between the national and global aspects of these ethno-religious politics. And this suggests, he argues, that there's a semiotic relationship between certain forms of globalization and religious and ethnic nationalism. It may appear ironic, but the globalism of culture and the emergence of transnational political and economic institutions actually enhance the need for local identities so we can distinguish ourselves kind of from that global other out there. And they also create the desire for more localized forms of authority and social accountability. So, and it's precisely these tensions um, that we see playing out today in the world and that we want to think more about um, next week as we continue to kind of wrestle with, how do we think about the increasing importance um, and relationships of global issues um, and world religions? Okay, that wraps up our show for this week. Next week, we'll delve deeper into the issue of religious violence and look at a handful of cases to help us think more about the ways in which religion and violence intersect in the world today. The interest song this week is Wandered Take Two by Admiral Bob. And the closing music is Perchance Universe by Tiger Beats. You can find a link to both songs in the show notes for this episode. As always, thanks for joining me for another episode of The End of the World, and I'll see you again soon. Stick, 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 stick,